You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. When the ice Everyone, you are listening to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast, brought to you by Newspapers.com, home of the world's largest online newspaper archive. Most of our research is conducted through Newspapers.com. And by the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in beautiful downtown Port Colborne, Ontario. The Breakwall folks make the best craft beers in the Niagara region and offer some of the best pub food on the planet. Welcome to the very first episode of the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and I hope you enjoy our trips down memory lane as we report on happenings in the hockey and sports worlds just as they took place 50 years ago. I'd like to apologize for the delay in getting the podcast up and running. Technical difficulties, done strictly on my part, I screwed up, has kept us off the air until now. But now we're ready to go. Now, a bit about who we are and what we'll be doing here. As most of you know, our Twitter feed reports on hockey news from 50 years ago each and every day during the hockey season. We found that the 280 characters Twitter allows just isn't sufficient to do many of our news items justice. So, with the able assistance of my and support of my son Andy Cole, my daughter Amy Cole, and wife Francine, we decided to find a way to offer more detail and analysis on the news of 50 years ago, and here we are. My son Andy's had a fine radio career and is a whiz at producing these things. He's been providing broadcasting tips and hints so that we sound at least somewhat professional, and he produces the whole shebang. I promise we'll get better with this as time goes on. My daughter Amy is a TV producer and writer, and a musician. She helps with writing hints, and her band, the Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our introduction music. Now, a little about me, for those of you who don't know me. I'm a retired police officer from the Niagara Regional Police. I've also been an investigator post-police career, and I'm a lifelong hockey fan who's always had an interest in the history of the sport and in media in general. I was kind of a media junkie right from a very early age. When I got out of high school in 1970, I studied journalism in university, and since that time, I've always tried to improve my writing skills. I've worked a bit in the hockey business, most recently with the Statletes Analytics Company. That's the firm started by Arizona Coyotes GM John Chica, and in their early days, I worked with them. I also did all the player ratings for EA Sports for their NHL games for several years. Our plan for the podcast is to have weekly episodes. We'll try to get them out every Friday. And those Friday episodes will always be free with everyone. 
We plan on reporting on the top story in hockey and sports of the week and analysis provided by the top sports writers of that time period, just as they wrote it 50 years ago. We'll also have features on players and issues were front and center at the time. Now, some folks have asked how we got started in all this. The inspiration for this Twitter account was an account that gave news from World War II as it happened from 1941 right up to the end of the war. Given my strong interest in the first NHL expansion of 1967, I thought it might be fun to chronicle these events leading up to that in the same manner, and we've kept that project up until today. I found myself wanting to add detail and context to what we posted on Twitter, and eventually, thanks to the encouragement and support of my kids and family, here we are. So what are we doing with our time here this week? Well, for this inaugural show, we'll talk about how the NHL was shaping up for the 69-70 season, including predictions from hockey writers on how they think the season would play out. Other important stories we'll cover in a little more detail will be the expansion process by which the NHL added two more clubs for the upcoming 1970-71 season. Another big topic of discussion will be that ugly stick-swinging incident on September 21st in a Boston-St. Louis game, which was played in Ottawa. That incident left Bruins defenseman Ted Green in hospital with a fractured skull that resulted in some paralysis and nearly took his life. We'll also name our Personality of the Week, which will be a regular feature all through the season. So first up, here's a few news items from the training camps that might affect the upcoming season. The training camps for all the NHL team took place throughout September and the early part of October. Here's a look at the highlights of each team's preseason regimen. One of the big issues that has been facing the National Hockey League over the summer and throughout the early fall has been the topic of expansion. The league had long discussed raising the number of teams from 12 to 14, and finally, on September 11th, the National Hockey League announced that it would expand by two teams for the 1970-71 season. The league named Vancouver as the prime candidate for one new spot, providing whatever applicant applies complies by December 1st with provisions laid down by the league. Expansion of the NHL from the present 12 teams to 14 was part of a blueprint for the long-range growth of the NHL, is what the NHL brass says at a press conference in New York City on the 11th. Under the plan, the Chicago Blackhawks would be shifted to the West Division, consisting of the six teams added to the NHL expansion of 1967. The two new teams for next year would play in the Eastern Division with Montreal, Toronto, Boston, Detroit, and New York. There will also be a new playoff format designed to have the two best teams compete in the Stanley Cup Finals, which of course hasn't happened in the first three years since the 67 expansion. All 14 member clubs will play a balanced schedule of 78 games instead of the present 76 the teams would play each other three times at home and three times away. NHL President Clarence Campbell said that all the changes will take effect in the 1970-71 season, provided suitable applicants come forward for the new two new franchises 
The franchises are priced at an incredible $6 million apiece, payable in the currency of the country where the franchise is located. Just as a reminder, when the NHL expanded in 1967, those teams paid a franchise fee of just $2 million. So a 300% increase over three years, that's inflation. In addition to Vancouver, Campbell said informal bids have already been received from Baltimore, Buffalo, Kansas City, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, and Cleveland. William Jennings, chairman of the board of the New York Rangers, made the similar announcement that Campbell made in New York. He confirmed that the league was also considering further expansion before 1974, which would include all the major hockey centers in the world. The world. In existing teams will make available 18 players and two goaltenders to each of the new clubs with the draft to be held in June 1970, again likely in Montreal. Each of the 12 existing teams would be permitted to protect 15 players and one goaltender. That means the new teams would not have access to any of the top 180 forwards and defensemen or 12 goalkeepers in the world. Now Campbell noted that Vancouver already has a strong nucleus of players from its own roster and that of Rochester in the American Hockey League. The new playoff format is designed to get away from the present practice of having intra-divisional playoffs until each division produces a winner and the two divisional champions then meet in the Stanley Cup Finals. Montreal Canadiens, champions of the established Eastern Division, have bested the Western champions, St. Louis Blues, in four straight games each of the past two years. 1969 is the year of the strike in professional sports. The latest group involved in a labor dispute was the 20 referees and linesmen of the National Hockey League who walked out of an official's preseason training camp on September 15th. Earlier in the year, Major League Baseball players had refused to sign contracts or report to spring training until the owners accepted their demands. Then, prior to football training, a group of veteran players of the Toronto Argonauts staged a holdout even though most had already signed contracts. The hockey officials who departed represented 80% of the NHL officiating staff of last season, which also provides staff for the American, Western, and Central Hockey Leagues. The walkout centers around the failure of the NHL to recognize the National Hockey League Referees and Linesmen's Association, which was formed two months ago under lawyer Joe Kane of Toronto. He's a former University of Toronto hockey player, and he was last season the president of the Central Hockey League. He's their legal counsel. We plan to continue with the 19 officials we have in camp, which includes five senior men, said NHL referee-in-chief Ian Scotty Morrison. The five senior men he refers to who are not members of the association are referees John Ashley and Art Scove and linesmen Matt Pavlich, Neil Armstrong, and Claude Bechart. 
Ever mindful of the NHL regulation forbidding officials to comment on matters of league policy, the strikers let Kane do the talking when they checked out of their motel on the 15th. The NHL has refused to recognize our association, declared Kane. Under the circumstances, the only thing the employee can now do is withdraw his services. We have tried to conduct our association like a professional outfit. How can they talk about our demands when they've never even met us? The officials, indicating they feel it's only a stalemate, were making preparations to continue a program of calisthenics, skating and training at an arena in Lambton, Ontario. Morrison says, I told them that, by the very nature of their jobs, they were used to making decisions under pressure, so it's up to them as individuals to decide what to do. He outlined the association's demands. Number one, they wanted official recognition of their association by the governors and NHL president. Number two, they wanted their legal representative, Mr. Kane, at the request of all officials, be permitted to attend all negotiations pertaining to salary and pensions. Number three, Morrison had to give them an indication that there would be a meeting with representatives of the NHL and, failing acceptance of these demands, they would in fact stay off the job. Now Morrison charged the officials sought a flat 23% increase in salary. He said that he'd done a salary analysis over the past three years and an average increase in that time has been in the neighborhood of 43% but he declined to show any evidence of that or provide any references. Morrison estimated that senior officials' salaries are in the sixteen to 20000 bracket, junior officials at ten to 12000 and minor league on-ice officials get about seven to $10,000 a year. Morrison said, When I came into the NHL in 54-55, an official was provided only with two sweaters. Now we give them all the equipment from whistles to skates. They stay in first-class hotels, and they receive the same per diem meal money as the players, even when working in the minor leagues. Now, I don't say the door is closed on any of them when he talked about the demands, but they were the ones who walked out in Montreal President Clarence Campbell said the league's next move was to take the necessary steps to fill the gap, which means, by the sounds of it, hiring scab workers. He said the league governors have already made a decision not to recognize the association, and this left the league no other course but to find replacement officials. This is the thin edge of the wedge, Campbell said. If they get recognition, we'd never get rid of them. I think they're entitled to have a day or two to cool off, to think about it away from the union pressure. I'd like these fellows to think about where they expect to go from here. And where did they expect to go from here? Well, about halfway through the walkout, something very unusual happened. Joe Kane, the representative of the officials, arranged a meeting with Charles Mulcahy, vice president of the Boston Bruins, and Harold Ballard, a former executive vice president of Maple Leaf Gardens. They huddled with Kane at the Hot Stove League at Maple Leaf Gardens. Now, there's strong agreement over what, if anything, was accomplished, but there was no doubt that 
The immediate results were shocking. NHL President Clarence Campbell and Referee-in-Chief Scotty Morrison were completely unaware that this meeting took place. Campbell was so upset, he was ready to resign, and Morrison said he considered resigning, but he only relented when he started thinking about how much it cost to feed his wife and seven kids. Regardless of what you think did or didn't take place in that meeting and what help it was, on the 23rd, the referees announced that they were returning to work. They reached a seven-point agreement with the National Hockey League officials after a meeting in Brantford, where the training camp was taking place, with Scotty Morrison and two supervisors of officials, Frank Avery and Dutch Van Dielen. Brian O'Neill, the NHL Director of Administration, was also there. Noticeably missing was any admission of recognition of the officials' association in the release delivered to newspaper offices by NHL Publicity Director Ron Andrews. Joe Kane, legal counsel of the officials, while acknowledging his group lacked formal acknowledgement, said his clients had indeed be recognized. They have been recognized because the NHL has acceded to the demands brought up by the association. The NHL didn't come up with these proposals. We did. That Kane wasn't present at yesterday's session because the NHL refused to accept legal counsel at the bargaining sessions, and that had been a key demand of the association. They were represented by senior officials Bill Friday, Vern Buffy, and Bruce Hood. Violence on the ice during the previous weekend, including the stick-swinging duel between Ted Green and Wayne Mackey, may have sped both sides to the negotiation table for the final settlement. We'd like to think that that was the reason, said Kane, although this meeting had been set up tentatively before the weekend. It could have been canceled by someone exploding. What happened in the weekend games could have helped. I think they, the NHL, came to the bargaining table recognizing, even though those games are no reflection on the officials that were in them, that the need to have these experienced men come back. Last week, we came out and said the fines and penalties from these things are so inadequate, it's like a license to continue that activity. Most of the time, the fines are paid by the club anyway. The player isn't even hurt by it. The owners compound the situation by saying fights add color to the game. The biggest victory for the officials was gaining a base contract calling for at least as much as each official made last season. Previously, 25% of their salaries were withheld until the end of the season, at which time the league would decide if it should be paid or withheld based on the performance of the official. No official could recall that the money ever was withheld, but it was right there on the books that they had that option if they wanted it. Here are the main points that the officials agreed upon. Number one, a contract for the 69-70 season shall be offered to each official and shall provide for a salary of not less than that amount paid to the officials during the 68-69 season. The per-game schedule of fees shall not be less than what was offered by mail contract and telegram to the officials over the summer. The NHL shall make the entire payment to the pension plan for officials officiating the National Hockey League games. 
The NHL will also make the entire payment to an approved medical insurance plan for each of their on-ice officials. And the NHL will pay for each official the maximum portion of the life insurance premium to the same extent as provided to NHL players. Now, these concessions certainly will improve the lot of hockey officials, but Scotty Morrison pointed out he had told officials the night before they walked out of camp that the league had approved all of them except the base contract. Kane was not allowed in the meeting at which the agreement took place. He was allowed to sit outside the room and the participants inside met frequently with him for advice on negotiations. When Morrison was asked if there was still an official's association, he said very definitely there's association. When asked to expand on that, he said, we still have our official's relations committee. One of the ugliest stick-swinging incidents in many years took place on September 21st in Ottawa between Ted Green of the Boston Bruins and St. Louis Blues forward Wayne Mackey. Green, notorious for his rough and vicious play, suffered a brain laceration and a skull fracture in a stick-swinging duel before 9,394 horrified spectators at the Ottawa Arena. The Boston defenseman was taken to a hospital where he underwent surgery. His condition the next morning was reported as satisfactory, but there were indications that it was touch and go for a while just after Ted got to the hospital. The incident occurred midway through the first period of the exhibition game between the Blues and Bruins, won by St. Louis 5-1. Wally Cross of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch described what he saw of the incident. He said Green had roughed up Mackey in the corner to the left of the Boston goal, knocking him to the ice with a punch to the face. Mackey climbed to his feet and jabbed at Green's midsection. The six foot, 206-pound Boston Bruins defenseman then chopped down on a smaller opponent, landing a two-handed swing with his stick on the left side of Mackey's head. The blow staggered the St. Louis player, but he retaliated with a slashing swing that caught Green on the right temple and dropped him. The Boston player managed to somehow regain his feet, but he wasn't able to talk at the time. Although officials of the Bruins refused to speculate at the time on the seriousness of Green's injury, it seemed likely that he's not going to be playing again this year. Green was a second-team National Hockey League All-Star last year, and any extended absence from the Boston lineup will be a serious loss to the club. The exhibition almost generated into a riot when the Bruins' wonder boy, Bobby Orr, jumped over the boards immediately after the incident. He charged across the ice and knocked Mackey down with a cross-check from behind. Of course, at that point, both benches emptied, but officials managed to restore some semblance of order. Now, Green received minor penalties for roughing and high-sticking and a match penalty for attempting to injure. Mackey was assessed a minor for high-sticking, and he also got a match penalty for the same reason. As Mackey was heading to the locker room, the entire Boston team charged onto the ice and attempted to chop him down with their sticks. 
Mackey held the pack at bay with wild swings of his own stick until his teammates could come to the rescue, and then he ducked behind the protective glass at the sideboards. The crowd gave Mackey a loud ovation as he left and booed Orr every time he stepped on the ice for the rest of the night. Green was examined in the first aid room by Dr. David Streeter, physician for the Ottawa 67's junior hockey team. Dr. Streeter immediately called an ambulance for Green to take him to the hospital. During that initial examination, Dr. Streeter observed the depression in Green's skull and immediately notified Dr. Michael Richard of the Ottawa General Hospital. He's a surgeon there. As soon as Green arrived at the hospital, Dr. Richard performed neurosurgery that took about three hours. Green was taken from the operating room about 1.30 a.m. Dr. Richard said immediately after the operation, as of this moment, I do not think the injury will impair his playing career. He did indicate, though, that by no means certain that Green could come back on skates in a couple of months. The defenseman's injury was described as a depressed skull fracture. A plate was inserted into his head. Bruins general manager Milt Schmidt went to the hospital with Green, but returned to the rink when he was informed that there'd be no definite word on Ted's condition for quite some time. After returning to the team's hotel, Schmidt planned on calling Green's wife Pat, who was still at their home in Transcona, Manitoba, with their three children. Milt did say later on in the evening that he was able to contact Mrs. Green and he said that she took the news very well. She plans on coming to Ottawa as soon as possible. Green will be staying in the Ottawa hospital for an indefinite period and won't be moved. It's quite likely that other surgeries will be planned and this could certainly spell an end to a controversial career. And now it's time for our preseason predictions. We've taken a consensus among the NHL writers, and with very few exceptions, they see the Eastern Division finishing like this. Montreal is a runaway favorite for first place, with Boston not far behind. The New York Rangers are slated to finish third, with the Detroit Red Wings manning the fourth and final playoff spot. The final two spots belong to Toronto and Chicago, and they could finish in either order. Out west, it's a little more difficult to nail down the final finish, but the overall thinking is the St. Louis Blues should end up on top, with the Kings and North Stars missing the playoffs. Now, as far as those teams in the middle, you could throw a blanket over Pittsburgh, Oakland, and Philadelphia, and they could finish anywhere in that order behind the Blues and in front of Minnesota and Los Angeles. Now I'll have a look at each of the team's prospects for the season. Now, in the Boston training camp in London, signs were evident when they started that the Bruins were champions-elect of the NHL destined to rule hockey through the next decade as Montreal did through the last. Then Kenny Hodge missed the entire camp, recovering from a ruptured appendix. Ted Green was clubbed into an Ottawa hospital, and he may never play again. A cartilage was knocked loose in Derek Sanderson's right knee, and Bobby Orr was sent to Boston to check in his suspect knees, both of them. Now hold that estimate on the champions-elect. The Bruins have a ways to go. The absence of important players cost the Bruins preseason games that they should have won. Strong points for the Bruins? 
the highest scoring line for one reason still intact. Phil Esposito, Ken Hodge, and Ron Murphy combined for 263 points last season. Esposito, the most valuable player in the league last year, played like the most valuable player in training. Set down the center with Esposito, Sanderson, and Freddie Stanfield. Best set of right wings in Hodge, McKenzie, and Westfall. And John Busick always gets 25 to 30 goals on the left wing. The Bruins' four forward lines are solid. Or, healthy is the outstanding defenseman, maybe the outstanding player in hockey. His precocity is surrounded by a team of truculents, which requires calendars to add up the penalties. The total last season was a whopping 1,297 minutes, the most any team has ever served for a season of sinning. Bruins do have some weak points. Question marks in the vicinity of Orr's kneecaps. The loss of Green had such a hole to fill, said Milt Schmidt. And Jerry Cheevers might need more help and goal than he got last year from Eddie Johnson. The outlook for this Boston team... They're in a dead heat with Montreal for first if the big men stay fit. In any case, no worse than third behind Montreal and New York if the Rangers can get by them. Things did not go well during the Montreal Canadiens training camp. Key personnel problems appeared. John Beliveau, John Ferguson, and Gilles Tremblay to name three. Beliveau, who has dominated other centers with his strength and fine skill for a decade and a half, suddenly has lost his strength. He spent seven days in a Montreal hospital with, quote, extreme fatigue and won't be released from hospital until Wednesday. Ferguson, the socket-to-everybody left winger, lost his left jab and his shot, too, when his hand was cast in plaster. He injured a thumb while blocking a Carl Brewer slap shot in an exhibition game. The cast won't be removed until after the first week of the season. Tremblay, who has not played since last February because of a respiratory ailment, turned up in training camp, took part in workouts and scrimmages, but he didn't play in an exhibition game and he will not start in the opening lineup with the season. Now, this was a terrible situation for Coach Claude Ruel, who's a short, pudgy collection of worries. Ruel uses negative thinking to find success, such as last year's first-place finish and Stanley Cup win. As this season opened, Ruel had exceptional worries. Still, his team won five exhibition games while losing three, tying two, and giving plenty of ice time to rookies in the mean. I used everybody I thought might have a chance, and I never benched anyone, explained second-year coach during a 4-1 loss to Boston. Ruel used 28 different line combinations in that loss. Strong points for this Montreal team. Unequal depth. Nobody in the league has the depth the Habs have. There are excellent players to spare at all forward positions and competent defensemen to provide protection for Gump Worsley and Rogie Vashon, who are both out to improve on last year. Worsley retired temporarily with bad nerves, you remember, last season, and Vashon was erratic, but when good goaltending was necessary, they provided it. Gump's goals against average was 2.26, and Vashon's 2.87. There are weak points. Montreal's power play, once dreaded everywhere in hockey, was only the fifth best in the NHL last year. J.C. Tremblay can be inconsistent on defense, and Ralph Backstrom sometimes falls into slumps at center. 
The big question is, will Bellavo's seven days in hospital prove to be enough rest for a grueling 76-game schedule? The outlook says that the Habs are still the best team in hockey, but Boston and New York are nipping at their heels. Well, what about the New York Rangers? Always seeming to be approving, never winning at all. Emil Francis is a small, neat, conservative-looking little guy who immediately gives the impression that he's ready to burst with enthusiasm, energy, and confidence when he begins talking about his beloved Rangers. You have to wait until Stanley Cup playoff time when the Rangers have collapsed, as they have in the past three years, to see the general manager coach in a dejected mood. But this year, the cat says things will be different. This is the best bunch I've seen come to our camp in, oh, about eight years. The reason we had such a good camp, I think, is that when we let Phil Goyette, Harry Howell, and Reg Fleming go, everybody realized there were jobs open. After the training camp was over, the Rangers still had plenty of old faces, enough for three lines and four defensemen of Ranger holdovers. But they added young Billy Fairbairn, Juha Weeding, the Swedish import, and Raoul Lemieux as extra forwards, and Al Hamilton was retained as a fifth defenseman. Orlan Curtinback, the big center who was out last year with back surgery, has returned. Now Francis is counting on Terry Sachuk, the 39-year-old future Hall of Fame goaltender, had limited success last season with Detroit, but he's going to help goalie Eddie Jockerman by playing about 15 or so games this year. Francis hopes that'll be enough to prevent Jockerman from tiring by playoff time. Francis promises we'll have a lot of skating and much more depth than in our previous season. The difference now is with the players we sent to Buffalo and Omaha. We know people like Ab DeMarco Jr., Jack Eagers, and Don Luce will be able to do a job if we have to call them up. Rangers' strong points are centers Jean Rattel, right-wing Hot Rod Gilbert, and left-wing Vic Hadfield, the goal a game line. They combined for 88 goals in the 68-69 season. The Rangers have a really good second line with Walt Kachuk centering veterans Bobby Nevin and Dave Ballone. The third line, which has curtain back between Ron Stewart and Don Marshall, is as serviceable as a wheelbarrow, though not much flashier. Jackman had an excellent goals against average of 2.55 last year, and the Rangers also boost a solid young defense headed by 29-year-old Jimmy Nielsen. There are some weak points. Sachuk's chronically sore back could reduce his value. He did play well in exhibition games, and Stewart and Marshall are also 37-year-olds who could slow down by this time in their careers. It says here that the outlook for the Rangers is at least a solid third-place finish for a team that could challenge for a higher final placing. Now, the situation in Toronto is a strange one compared to those in the past decade. The Leafs have a lot of hope and optimism thanks to the new management team of general manager Jim Gregory and coach John McClellan, and they've faced a barrage of smiling backslappers ever since they took over. Congratulations, a stranger keeps saying. With you in there, John or Jim, as whoever the case may be, the Leafs are going right to the top. Yes, sir. That probably isn't the case. Lately, since the Leafs won only one of 10 exhibition games, the line has changed slightly to don't worry, Jim Baby or John Baby. Everything's going to turn out. Wait and see. Yep, sure it will. Well, Toronto fans should get used to their heroes being somewhat less than heroic these days. 
This figures to be a winter full of struggling for fourth place if they can make the playoffs at all. The Leafs are definitely in a rebuild mode. Tim Horton's decision to give up his retirement makes the immediate future just a little bit more promising. But the Leaf problems aren't limited to the young defenseman Horton's going to have to mentor. The wings on the forward lines are questionable too. Through their exhibition games, there was a noticeable lack of back-checking, and the Leafs must offer enthusiastic checking of all kinds if they're going to win games. Defensive play by the forwards was a hallmark of the IMLAC teams, but that doesn't appear to be any part of the present Maple Leaf system. In goal, Bruce Gamble and Marv Edwards have been subject to a lot of criticism, but at least they should be adequate. The Toronto Club does have a few strong points. Tim Horton is a first-team All-Star. Norm Ullman, Davey Keon, and Mike Walton provide excellence at center, as good as there is in the league. Coach John McClellan lends a quiet assurance that may bring results as the season progresses. The brass has a lot of faith in John. Continued development of Big Wayne Swoop Carlton at left wing could help considerably. He could be the new Frank Mahovlich if he puts his mind to it. A lot of weak points on this team, though. While other teams have strengthened, the Leafs are basically the same squad that finished fourth last season. The young defensemen will commit goofs with the exuberance that their tender years brings along, and the forwards won't always be able to rush back to check. Several players, such as Mike Pellick and Jim Dory, are susceptible to foolish penalties, as we've seen already. At the same time, the Leafs have no forwards ready to flex muscles in the rough going. The outlook for this team, probably fifth place, with fourth place a distinct possibility depending on how eager the Leafs are and how strong the Red Wings end up being. Speaking of the Red Wings, they resemble the Toronto Maple Leafs in exile this year. Six former Leafs have switched to Red Wing haberdashery. Frank Mahovlich, Peter Stemkowski, Larry Jeffrey, Bobby Bond, Carl Brewer, and the mod-looking Gary Unger. Problem for the Red Wings, aside from the new players from Toronto, is that the guys who have been the big names over the last eight or ten seasons are still the big names. Gary Bergman, the defenseman, is in his sixth year. Bruce McGregor, the stylish right winger, is in his ninth. Alex Delvecchio is in his 19th season in the National Hockey League. And the ageless Gordy Howe is in number 24. How was the athlete in mind when someone coined the tattered cliche, he came to play? There was proof of that if additional proof is needed in the last minutes of a recent exhibition game. Wayne Connolly, a right wing, prepared for a face-off. Then Connolly noticed one of his laces was broken. He skated to the bench. Howe just finished a shift, should have been tired, but he was the first player over the boards to replace Connolly. Yeah, Gordy Howe. Not a fuzzy-faced kid but the 24-year veteran. Cut that out, Gordy, Coach Bill Gadsby hollered. Get back here. Gordy skated back, but you could tell by the body language he didn't want to be on the bench. With help like that, Gadsby always has a chance to succeed as coach. The Red Wings' strong points are Howe Del Vecchio and Big Frank Mahovlich. They were responsible for practically half of Detroit's goals last season. That line scored 118 times. The team total was 239. New Los Angeles coach Hal Laco 
says they could give everybody in the league a lesson in stick handling. Now, the Red Wings just announced before the start of the season that Mahovlich is happy there, and he signed a new two-year contract. Defenseman Carl Brewer, he's been in limbo for four seasons with international amateurs, returns with all-star skills and credentials. Berkman is underrated among NHL defensemen, and he's better than everyone thinks. Bond is a broken bone in one leg. He just got at the end of the exhibition schedule. But Bobby's used to skating on broken legs, and it shouldn't be a handicap for him. He'll be back pretty soon. Bond once scored a goal against Detroit while hobbling on a broken stern. Gary Unger is one of the game's gifted young centers, and he'll be a highlight reel himself for most of this season. Now, there are some weak points on this Detroit team. Depending on too many veterans who finished one point above last place last year, it's going to be a problem. They'll need more than 18 goals from right winger McGregor. Young players like Hank Monteith must improve enough to take the pressure off the eldering. The question is, can Roger Crozier's jumpy nerves settle down sufficiently for him to backstop Roy Edwards and goal? Those things happen, the Red Wings are going to be in the playoffs. We see him as a solid fourth ahead of the Hawks and the Leafs. The final Eastern Division team we'll look at is Chicago. You didn't hear much in the way of easy banner from Blackhawks coach Billy Ray or GM Tommy Ivan in recent days. The other day they stood quietly in the Chicago Stadium corridors talking with people they knew well and if a strange reporter walked up they seemed to assume he'd be asking about Bobby Hull and the fact he hadn't shown up at training camp yet. Ray and Ivan did not appreciate questions on that topic. Another horror for the Hawks management presented itself when Pitt Martin solemnly stated that only five Hawks really cared about winning games. One of the five Martin named, by the way, Kenny Warren, suffered a mild heart attack and he won't play this season, if ever again. The strong points for the Hawks are Stan Makita and Doug Moans being counted on for big plays, even with Warm gone. Those threesome were the scooter line, one of the best and fastest lines in the NHL. The Hawks do have three 30-goal scorers, Makita, Jim Tappan, and Dennis Hull. Martin scored 23 times last year, and Moans, while spelling off time on defense, scored 22 times. Goalkeeping should be improved with the veteran Dennis DeJordi and Phil Esposito's brother Tony acquired from Montreal. And Bobby Hull will come back, won't he? It was last season he scored an unprecedented 58 goals, and any figure close to that would be a big help in Ray's plan to stay away from minus hockey and try and get into the playoffs. But the weak points are there. Makita Martin, Terry Caffrey, Lou Angotti don't have any size, and size down the middle is important in the National Hockey League these days. The Hawks are fitting in six to nine new players this year, and that inexperience will be costly as well. Their defensive record should improve, but it still must be considered minus material. The outlook for the Blackhawks this year is bleak. As the season goes on, the Hawks will settle down. They'll be in last place. This is, like Toronto, a season for rebuilding. Out west, it's basically St. Louis and then everybody else. One of the big reasons for the St. Louis's success in their first three NHL seasons has been general manager coach Scotty Bowman. 
Scotty has been absorbed in hockey for most of his 36 years, but last summer, the St. Louis coach discovered life has something else to offer. In August, he married a St. Louis girl named Sue Chitty. Bowen did not allow the honeymoon to get in the road of hockey, of course. His nuptial celebrations included a two-day visit with Glenn Hall at Hall's Farm near Stony Plain, Alberta. Hall's parting words were comforting for Scotty. If you get in trouble, Scotty, call me. That, said Bowman just before the season started, was the best wedding present we got. Leave it, Scotty, to put hockey into his wedding. Hall, 38, was one reason the Blues romped to their second successive championship of the expansion group. Jock Plant, 40, was the other. These daddies combined to win the Vezina Trophy as the goalers performed for the team which allowed the fewest goals, only 157. Bowman says, I hate to break up a team that's won the division twice. The few changes we made look like good ones. Phil Goyette from New York, Andre Boudreaux from Chicago, and Ernie Wakely, the goalie from Montreal. Now Wakely, who's 28, is a lean netminder who shared duties in training camp with Plant. Robbie Irons, and Gary Edwards. Bowman says, I'm still counting on Hall for 20 games or so. If he'll work with Plant like last winter, we're set. Aside from the goaltending, the Blues have lots of strong points. One of the best is that they possess poise. The fact that the Blues have won it twice, says manager Jack Riley of Pittsburgh, gives them an edge on the rest of us. Goyette, Red Berenson, and Frank St. Marseille give St. Louis the most reliable center lineup in the West. Larry Keenan was the best right winger in camp. Al Arbor and Jim Roberts represent a defense pairing unlikely to make many mistakes. The boisterous plaguers, Bill, Barkley, and Bob, are baggage smashers and give the Blues much-needed muscle. As we mentioned, the Blues will be uncommonly sound in goal if Hall plays. The betting is a salary ranging between forty-seven dollars and $50,000 a year is the reason he'll probably play. The Blues' weak spots, well, they don't have many, really. The clubhouse creaks with age, we can say that, and it's been many years since truant officers came looking for people like Hall, Plant, Goyette, Arbor, Ab McDonald, and Camille Henry. The, the, the Blues will require young forwards like Timmy Ecclestone to increase goal production. Ecclestone is a 22-year-old native of Etobicoke, Ontario, and he missed most of training camp with a busted wrist. The Blues can't be picked for anything other than first place in the Western Division. If Hall's reports, as Scotty Bowman thinks he will, his honeymoon certainly won't be over. In Pittsburgh, most of the optimism centers around new coach Leonard Red Kelly. Red was delighted to leave Los Angeles, but only an outrageous optimist would consider Pittsburgh an improvement over that. He's starting his new coaching act in the fashion of the late Harry Houdini. He's at the bottom of the river, tied up in a sealed box with a count of two strikes and three mortgages on him. Now, General Manager Jack Riley says, we tried to help Red out. We've got Brian Hextall from Vancouver, and he's a scrapper. we got Glenn Sather, who was robust in Boston. We picked up goalie Al Smith from Toronto, and Ron Schock is a center from St. Louis we have high hopes for. We also got old pro Dean Prentice from Detroit. Strong points for the Penguins. While players from other places might contribute that corny, intangible, winning attitude. 
Shock was a winner at St. Louis. Sather was a combatant at Boston. And Prentice has been a professional in New York, Boston, and Detroit for many years. But days when he is professional may be growing farther and farther apart. Dean is 37. Brian Watson adds the intimidating presence of a Nurkin on defense. Ken Schinkel is a right winger who should be better than the 18 goals he posted last season. Bob Wojtowicz is a 195-pound defenseman from Winnipeg, and he's Pittsburgh's superior blue liner. He has a fan club which persists in wearing straw boaters with a deviant headband, Bob Wojtowicz's Polish Army. Weak points for the Penguins? Well, front and center in their minds is the remembrance of a last-place finish last season. The goalkeeping is suspect after Les Binkley. Al Smith and Joe Daly replaced Binkley after he suffered torn stomach muscles during training camp, and they don't look like they can carry an NHL franchise. Les is expected to be back two or three weeks into the regular season. There were too many players on this team in the lower range of NHL talent. The best bet for the Penguins this year is they won't be last. Up from the gutter with the Polish Army to at least fifth place, and with Kelly in command behind the bench, you could see them actually make the playoffs. The troubled Oakland Seals always seem to be having financial difficulties. Surprisingly, however, though, the Seals were among the first NHL teams this year to have all their players signed to contracts. During the exhibition schedule, though, they finished just about last among the Western Division teams. They do have some good players. Center Ted Hampson is one of the slick playmakers in hockey. His leading scorer last year with the Seals on 26 goals and 49 assists. Right winger Norm Ferguson scored 34 goals last season as a rookie, and there's some veteran wingers, Jerry Eamon and Bill Hickey, 36 and 31 respectively, combined for a total of 46 markers. Defenseman Carl Vadney, who's only 24, is cut to the mold of Serge Savard, the cool young Montreal rear guard. Burt Marshall is another strong one on defense, And if he certifies the promise he showed as a freshman with Detroit four years ago, the Seals will be strong behind the blue line. The Seals' one weakness could be complacency. They showed that during training camp. Also, the goalkeeping is not set. Gangling Gary Smith was banished to Oakland's farm team in Providence shortly after training camp began, but a refreshed attitude earned him a call-up back to the team just before the NHL regular season started. The reason for that, though, wasn't so much of what Gary did as what veteran Charlie Hodge and sophomore Chris Worthy didn't do. Worthy will replace Smith in Providence, and Smith will probably replace Hodge as the number one goaltender. Now, the outlook for the Seals this year is kind of cloudy. They won't finish second like they did last season. Glover indicated last year he can make average athletes play better than they believe they are, and he has to make them believers all over again. Inspiration will be supplied by 35-year-old center Earl Lingerfield, who saw his best days with the New York Rangers. The thinking here is the Seals are no better than third. They certainly can't make it up to second again. The Philadelphia Flyers had the second-best defensive record in the Western Division last year behind St. Louis. Problem was, they had the worst offensive record, scoring a paltry 174 goals. 
To try and combat that problem, they recruited a new coach in the offseason. Vic Stasiuk was brought in from the Quebec City Aces farm team. They then traded for Reginald Fleming, a muscular exuberant from New York, and they drafted defenseman Larry Hillman, a quiet journeyman. They did not improve their attack at all. Hold it, protest Norman Bud Poyle, who's the ebullient team president. We drafted a kid you guys are going to be writing about for years. That kid is young Bob Clark, who filled nets on behalf of the Flynn Flon Bombers in the Western Canada Junior Hockey League. The Bombers were the best team in their league last year, but they were unable to contest the Memorial Cup because they played in that outlaw league. Strong points for the Flyers? The top young goalie in the NHL is Bernard Perrant, and he's only 24. He's going to be an all-time great. An intimidating defense staffed by Ed Van Imp, Joe Watson, Ralph McSwain, and the Hillman brothers should keep this team from being pushed around like it had been in the first couple of years in the NHL. The weak point, though, as we mentioned, is a meek attack. Andre Lacroix was the leading scorer last year, and he only netted 24 goals. He's capable of setting up twice that many, however, during the season. Newcomer Fleming only netted eight for the Rangers last year. Forwards like Rosie Pema, Dick Sarazen, Gary Meehan, and Bill Sutherland are not proven NHL shooters, and if they don't show up, the Flyers are going to lose a lot of one nothing games this year. Out west in Los Angeles, they have a new coach, and they have a young player that they're pinning a lot of hopes on. Dennis Hextall is 26. He's a red-haired forward with matching temper. He inherited his abrasive character from his father, Brian, an old rambunctious ranger who made the Hall of Fame. Young Hextall, quite full of himself, tested the old champ in a recent exhibition game in Barrie between the Kings and the Detroit Red Wings. He knocked down one Gordon Howe, which has been a mistake for 24 years and continues to be a mistake. Howe does not humor heretics. Later in the game, he crashed into Hextall, shoving an elbow into the rookie's expression, then squeezed his neck in a lovely hammerlock. Dennis didn't seem odd or alarmed. He continued on and played with the same rambunctious style, and if he can do that all year for the Kings, they might have some hope. Now, the Kings have a very competent coach in, in newcomer Hal Laco. They are nimble through center with Je- Eddie the Jet Joyelle, Gordon Labossier, and Brian Campbell. Edward Shack and owner Jack Kent Cook deserve each other, both cut to the salami of Hollywood. Shack is guaranteed to turn them wild in the seats of the forum and also on the ice if he continues to play left and right wing simultaneously. Leon Rochefort, naturally, is nicknamed Cheese, and he can be crafty on the right wing. Bill Cowboy Flett, another right winger, scored 24 goals last year. Ross Lonsbury, who's 22, is a scooter-type left wing obtained from Boston in the Shack deal. And Skip Craig, a center who plays all three forward positions, is a vigilant penalty killer. It's easy to spot the weak points on this Los Angeles club. Defense. The Kings broke camp with only one rear guard of regard, and that's Dale Rolfe. Now, Brent Hughes missed most of training camp with a bruised eyeball, and Bill White walked out over a ruptured contract. 
Larry Cahan, another veteran the Kings were counting on, just prefers to sit home in Vancouver. Laco says, we had guys quit us from coast to coast. Cahan in the far west, White in central Canada, and Lowell McDonald in the far east. We miss them all. McDonald left the team, citing a fear of flying, and out in Los Angeles, they travel that way more than any other method. Laco missed Wayne Rutledge at camp. The tall backup goaltender required surgery for removal of a bone spur from inside one leg. His absence thrust first-string responsibility on young Jerry Desjardins, who yielded 3.26 goals a game in 60 contests last year. The outlook for the Kings? Not so great. There will be nights when Lakel will wish he remained in Portland and leading the Western Hockey League club there. They might have an outside shot at fourth place, but we can't see it here. And our final Western Division team, the Minnesota North Stars, run by general manager coach Ren Blair. Blair dresses like a modified hippie. Blues, greens, and eye-popping purples blended into one glorious explosion of paint. He talks like a pushy punch imlac, whom he tried to hire as coach of the North Stars this summer. His conversation is as gaudy as his clothes. He says this, we finished last six last year, but had the stuff to be much higher in the standings. Is there a better young center than Danny O'Shea? Danny Grant deserved to be rookie of the year. Grant, Cullen, and LaRose were in the top 25 in scoring. Give me a defense and we're winging. We are the North Stars and I am the Big Dipper. The North Stars did not exactly ruin anybody's sleep in the preseason, except possibly that of Mr. Blair. They are colorful as long as they have them, but the jury is still out on the vital question. Do they have any competence on this team? The strong points, well, they have one excellent line in Danny Grant, Danny O'Shea, and Claude LaRose. Ray Cullen is a smooth second-line center. Leo Boyvin and Lou Nanny are deliberate defensemen, and J.P. Parise is a left wing who will check your bags and anything else that's left around loose. Lots of weak points, though. They have basically a grab bag of forwards other than those mentioned. Tommy Williams, obtained from Boston, might help. He's a Minnesota native who's coming home and maybe too thundering ovation. Problem is, injuries restricted him to just 26 games last year. The North Stars defense is unproven, worse than the NHL a year ago. They gave up 270 goals. Cesar Maniego was overworked in having to play 64 games, and he requires more aid than the records suggest he'll get from Fernrevard and newcomer Ken Broderick, fresh from the Canadian National League national team. The outlook for the North Stars? Strong team in that they will be strong because they'll have to hold up the rest of the Western Division from the bottom rung on the ladder. And now it's time to name our personality of the week, and it's none other than Punch Imlac, the former general manager coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs, who was fired last year just minutes after his team lost a fourth straight game in the Stanley Cup playoffs to the Boston Bruins. Punch seems to be in the news everywhere he goes. The former GM coach is rumored to have stock in the Western Hockey League Vancouver Canucks and their odds-on favorites to be one of the two new expansion teams to join the NHL next season. 
punch is probably going to be the general manager, coach, or some combination thereof with the Canucks if the ownership there has anything to say about it. Punch isn't doing anything in hockey this year other than writing a column for the Toronto Telegram. He refused an offer to coach the Minnesota North Stars, and the reason for that is because he's still being paid to not do anything by the Toronto Maple Leafs. Now, despite that, Joe Crozier, the present general manager coach of the Western Hockey League Canucks, is said to have offered Punch a job with the team. The post was to be a scouting position and helping Joe run his American Hockey League franchise in Rochester. The problem was, a couple days later, Punch says it was all a mistake. He really hadn't been offered a job by the Canucks. Nevertheless, he says he's going back to Vancouver just before the season starts, and he's going to talk to them about some sort of employment. As a stockholder in the team... Punch certainly would have an inside track, as we mentioned before. One thing is certain, Punch is sure to be kept in the front of the NHL headlines no matter what he does this season. With two new teams next year, the odds are that he's going to be either behind the bench, in the front office, or somewhere highly involved with one of those two new teams. And there you have it, everyone. The first episode of the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is in the books. So what did we learn today? Well, we learned there might just be some cracks in the Montreal Canadiens dynasty. We learned that my beloved Maple Leafs look to be on a downward spiral. How long will it be before they're ready to win another Stanley Cup? Well, that depends on how well General Manager Jim Gregory and Coach Johnny McClellan do in their jobs. Can't be too many years, I would think. We learned that Chicago Blackhawks center Pitt Martin has some guts and he really does care about the team he plays for. Some of his teammates and management, maybe not so much. We learned that if we go by the cost of expansion franchises now, as opposed to the expansion in 1967, it's clear that inflation is going to be a real problem for the NHL. And we learned that the NHL is not exempt from labor strife that's hit the other major sports. What you got to wonder is, when are the players going to take the cue from the officials and start striking themselves? We hope you join us weekly and follow along with us as the 1969-70 hockey season unfolds. It should be a fun ride. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. Our intro music comes to us courtesy of the Rural Alberta Advantage, and other musical pieces are by Andy Cole as well. Our stories are compiled with files from the Toronto Star and Toronto Globe and Mail and, of course, the many publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter at 1969HockeyNews and on Facebook under 50 Years Ago in Hockey. We also have a WordPress site at Hockey50YearsAgo.com. We'll be back next week with results from the first week of the National Hockey League season, some great features, and an interesting look at an interview that Ted Green gave to the Toronto Telegram from his Ottawa hospital room. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. When the ice breaks.